Our God and Father, Lord, we praise you today. We glorify you and we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you have given us life and breath and everything else. And that, Lord, you have been so gracious as to redeem us from sin and death. Lord, to rescue us from our rebellion against you. That, Lord, you have sent your son Jesus to give his life to bear our sins in his body on the cross. That, Lord, we might be healed. That, Father, we might be reconciled to you and have our fellowship with you restored by the great things that he has done. But, Lord, more than this, you even give us eternal life to spend with you forever in your presence. And that, God, we have the great hope that <coughs> We're only in this place of suffering and sin and death for a very short and momentary, brief time. That it is just a light and momentary affliction that we face here in this fallen world. But that the Christian hope is, O oh God, that soon and very soon we shall be united with our Lord Jesus forever. At that point, Lord, we become immortal never to die again, never to be subject to sin and death, no more mourning or dying or crying or pain. Lord, what great hope we have. And we thank you for this great promise. Indeed, it sustains us day by day, Lord, as we are just pilgrims passing through this place, which is not our home. We honor you and we bless you for these great promises. Help us today as we look into your word to learn more about this soon coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So with that, we are in the thick of it here in 2 Thessalonians. In chapter 2, we have been discussing verses 1 through 3, and we're going to be talking about 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 again today. And um, today we're going to be picking up on, on the handout, page 87, uh, about halfway down the page. But before we do that, I want to just summarize the things that we went over last week. And I'm going to read to you just briefly from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. This is really the text that we have in view. Paul writes there, chapter 2, verse 1 and following, this is the word of God. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as God." I'm going to go and read on through verse 12. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. 
And so there we have that whole section there where Paul is discussing the Antichrist and the things that will happen before the coming of the Lord. But what was in view last week when we started looking at verse 1 uh, through 3, we looked really closely at verse 1, which says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And the point that uh, I was pointing out last week, and I was showing you that the commentators were in agreement with me, um, when I handed out these notes, you had these notes. There's a little chart at the bottom. You might want to pull that up because I'm going to talk about that chart for a sec. But the point that I was making was universally with every commentator that I looked at, when they read verse 1, which says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, universally, they all look at that and say, that's what Paul was talking about back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Do you remember me making that point? And that um, what's in view in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17? Somebody tell me. The rapture of the church. The first resurrection. Okay which is also what Paul identifies in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians as the parousia, the coming of our Lord. Okay, so that in chapter 2, verse 1, when he says, concerning the coming of our Lord and our gathering together to him, he's referring back to that event that he described back in 1st Thessalonians 4, where he says, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a loud trumpet call, with the voice of the archangel, and uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we be with the Lord forever. That is what I call the rapture. And I was explaining to you that in my mind, that means more than just the catching away of the saints um, from the earth, although that's what's directly in view. It's that idea of being caught up, Right? The Greek word is harpazo. The Latin word is rapturos, right? Which is where we get the word, the term rapture. But the the idea that's in view there in 1 Thessalonians 4 is more than just the rapture. It's the first resurrection. It's when all the dead in Christ shall be raised. Okay? And it is at that point that all of the saints up until that point in history, including the living saints, will receive immortal, glorified bodies in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Okay? Which is what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, which was our text, which is our text right now. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, right? And he goes on to say further things. But the point is, very clearly, that when he says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together to him, even though he mentions that as two things, I was telling you that the commentators point out that that's one article in the Greek. That those two things are referring to the same thing. And what is that same thing? It's those events he described back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Okay? So when he says in verse 1, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, he's referring back to the first resurrection which happens at the parousia, the coming of our Lord. And he goes on to say then in verse 3 that uh, those things will not happen unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness be revealed. Paul's crystal clear point in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 3, is that the parousia of Christ, where he raptures the church and raises the dead in Christ, will not happen until the apostasy and the man of lawlessness be revealed. Okay? I was reasoning with you then, on that basis, that what Paul is clearly saying in those verses is that the rapture is a post-tribulational event. How do we know that? Because the Antichrist is revealed when? At the middle point of the 70th week of Daniel. 
which is, in my view, the inauguration of the Great Tribulation period. Okay? Now, there's some confusion about this. When I say tribulation to you, what does that mean? Okay, well, for some people, it means, let me show you this here. It means this whole seven-year period right here, which is equivalent to the 70th week of Daniel. So some people, when they say tribulation, what they mean by that is the whole seven-year period. Okay? For other people, what they mean by that is the last three and a half years, which they'll call the Great Tribulation. In fact, some Bible teachers will say that this whole seven years is the Tribulation, but the last three and a half is the Great Tribulation. Okay? So let me tell you what I mean when I say the Tribulation. Okay? What I mean is that thing that Jesus mentions in the text of Matthew 24 when he says... So when you see the abomination of desolation, right here, the midpoint of seven years, he says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, right? Then he says, if you're on the roof of the house, don't go get your cloak, right? Flee to the mountains, right? Because then there will be a time of tribulation such as not happened from the beginning of nations until that time, nor ever shall be, okay? Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 12. Verses 1 and following, when he says that. Okay? And <clears throat> that tribulation period, I was saying last week toward the end, somebody asked about this, and I was saying that the Bible never actually says how long that period of time is. In other words, what I mean by that, you can't go to a text of Scripture and look and say where the Bible says, okay, it's going to be 3.5 years, or it's going to be 7 years. Okay? Those are things that men do to the text. Men will say it's seven years, or men will say it's three and a half years, but what I'm saying is the Bible never says that. So what's my point? My point is just that we shouldn't just uh, naturally just take terms into our mind and decide that they mean a certain thing if the Bible doesn't actually tell us they mean a certain thing. Are you with me? Amen. So... I, I, uh, I believe that the Great Tribulation period starts when the Antichrist is revealed, which is right here in the middle of the three and a half years. Okay? And that that period of time continues forward. I am undecided, as I said last week, as to whether or not that will endure all the way until the end of the seven years when the second coming happens, or if it will happen just prior that the end of the tribulation will happen just prior to those seven years. I can't seem to figure out in Scripture how that works out. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. Here's this chart I keep showing you, which was in view when we had our discussion at the question and answer session last uh, May. Okay? On this chart, this is the chart of the pre-wrath rapture view. Okay? And he has all this stuff laid out rather neatly. But if you will, he's got the first three and a half years here, which is the, the first, second, third uh, of the seals. And then he shows the midpoint, the abomination of desolation, which is the opening of the fourth seal. Okay? Then that moves forward so that about halfway through the second three and a half years, he shows the sixth seal, the day of the Lord's sign and the rapture of the church happening right there. Then what, be, what is inaugurated at that point is the trumpet judgments, which go on through the end of the seven years. And then he shows the bowl judgments, which go on for the next 30 days after the end of the seven years. Okay? And then, of course, there's a period of restoration after that, 45 days before the beginning of the millennium. And, of course, those timelines he has of those 30 days and the 45 days and the 1,000 years beginning, that all comes from the book of Daniel. Chapter 8, chapter 11, chapter 12 talks about those things. Okay, But nevertheless, this is an example, if you will, of, of how somebody sees trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation and the bull judgments and how they fit into the seven-year period and all that, that uh, kind of thing. I have to tell you, this is the most convincing 
depiction of these events that I have ever seen as far as accuracy to the biblical text. That's my own personal opinion. But I still struggle with whether or not the rapture actually happens before the end of the seven years or right at the end of the seven years. It's, it's, I'm still trying to nail that down. That's not an easy thing to figure out, in my view. Um, but there's, there are several things I know for a fact. I know that concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, that's when we're going to be gathered together with him. Amen. And to me, that's crystal clear in the text of Scripture. Exactly when that happens in the timeline related to, if you will, the 70th week of Daniel, I'm not so sure about that. Because you have all these other events that we haven't even mentioned that, that happened during this time. When does Israel get saved? How does Israel get saved? Where is the church on the day Israel gets saved? We haven't even talked about that stuff, right? Not, not to mention, you know, what's happening with the Battle of Armageddon? What's happening with the gathering of the nations to make war against the Son of God? Where is all that taking place? How is that taking place? How does that take place in relation to the salvation of Israel? If this great war takes place in the Valley of Megiddo, which is in Palestine, right? Just, what, 30, 40 miles, somebody north of Jerusalem, right? If that's all happening then and there, okay, there's a lot of uh, uh, apocalyptic events that are unfolding all in this very heavily concentrated period of time of things that are going on. Not to mention, when is all of that happening in regard to the, uh, uh, the trumpet uh, judgments and the bull judgments and the uh, falling of Babylon and the falling of the great harlot and all of that in Revelation chapter 17, which all culminates at the second coming of Christ when the battle of Armageddon takes place. Are you with me? So trying to fit all that stuff into a timeline and find out which is first and which is second and what happens when, that's not such an easy science. But what is really easy is when you read what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse. And he says, this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and at that time, this will happen. And when that happens, this is going to happen, and immediately after that, this will happen, and then that will happen. That's how Jesus describes it. This is why I keep telling you, the easiest, most definitive text about the timing of end time events, including the rapture, is when the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And he spends two chapters in the book of Matthew answering that question and speaking specifically about what happens and, and how it happens in a sequence, in a chronological a way Jesus describes those things. That's why I'm saying this is the backbone of all prophetic apocalyptic literature right here. It doesn't get any clearer than it does in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Okay, that's what I'm saying. And when you read Matthew 24, it's, it's just as clear as day. It's not even presented in any kind of an apocalyptic way. Even though, though there's a lot of apocalyptic events that are there that are spoken of as apocalypses in other places in Scripture, when Jesus talks about it, man, he's just answering their question in a very straightforward, plain and simple manner. And he gives a chronology of events. So what I'm saying is, in regard to that timing, <clears throat> we should expect the Apostle Paul's teaching, the Apostle Peter's teaching, the Apostle John's teaching, all to accord with that timing that Jesus lays out in the Olivet Discourse. Because nowhere else in the Bible do we get that kind of a chronological, specific, big overview of all these events in a little chronology. Jesus really does that in a very clear and concise manner which is going to be the topic of our text this morning. We're going to look at Matthew 24. But I, I want to uh, make this point for you because, because of this idea that some people, when they hear the tribulation, they think seven years. That's not what I mean by tribulation. So when I say tribulation, you have to understand what I mean by that. I mean that time of great tribulation that happens because of what Antichrist does when he rises to power. And I'm not hanging a length of time on that, okay? 
Although I think that the scripture clearly points out that that will happen during the last three and a half years. Whether or not it endures that whole time period or not, I'm not so sure. One thing is for sure, the Antichrist will live from that midpoint all the way to the end of the 70th year. How do I know that? Because he's given power, the scripture says, for a time, time, and half a time. Or in Revelation 13, it says, he's given power for 42 months to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Okay? He is given power for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. It's 1,260 days. Okay? In the language of the Daniel's prophecy, it's a time, time, and half a time. A time, times, and half a time. Okay? It's the second half of the three and a half, I'm sorry, second half of the seven year, 70th week of Daniel. Okay? All right. So, with that, <clears throat> grab your Bible and turn to Matthew 24. So why are we in Matthew 24 when we're studying 2 Thessalonians? Because of the statement I made just a few minutes ago. When I was trying to tell you that, if we, if we look at the Apostle Paul's teaching about eschatology, and he starts talking about timing, that timing ought to accord with this chronology that Jesus gives in Matthew 24. And that's what I want to show you this morning. What I want to show you this morning is what Paul is saying in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3, is exactly what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Okay? So I'm picking up on page 87 of the notes about halfway down, which is where we ended last week. So also note... Paul's sequence of events outlined here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. This is exactly the sequence of events outlined by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, verses 9 through 31, Jesus shows this progression of events. There he says that the persecution and apostasy will abound and many people will fall away. So, if you will, when you're, when you're looking at the text of Matthew 24, Jesus is answering the question that is posed to him by his disciples in, uh, in verse 3, where they say, uh, he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? That is the destruction of the temple that he just mentioned. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And of course, the first thing out of Jesus' mouth is this. See to it that no one misleads you. So Jesus doesn't want us to be misled about what? About the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. He wants us to understand that very clearly. So what he's going to do is he's going to give us a chronology of events and he's going to describe how they're going to unfold. That's what he does in the following verses, okay? So from chapter... 24 verse 4 all the way through chapter 24 verse 31 Jesus is giving that chronology and he's giving the unfolding of those events and then in chapter 24 verse 32 he uses a little parable there and he has some literary interludes into the things that he's been saying but the main body of the chronology that Jesus gives starts in verse 4 and goes through verse 31 which is where the second coming is in view, okay? So he goes on from there and he says, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Okay, and so there Jesus is saying these various things are going to characterize uh, the, the, the world uh, preceding his coming. But he says, even when you see those things, it's not quite yet the end. Okay, and then <clears throat> I'm going to pick up on the notes here. 
going on from there, verses 8 through 13, Jesus talks about the fact that there's going to be persecution and that there's going to be apostasy. Okay, so apostasy is simply the turning away from the true faith. Okay, in the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and the NASB, it's fall away. Okay, but the idea of apostasy is the same thing. Fall away from what? Fall away from the teaching of the true faith. Okay, look at the context of verses uh, uh, 9 through 13. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Okay? Mm -hmm. So Jesus describes that during this time, that the sign of his coming and of the end of the age is going to be characterized by what? By um, you will be delivered to tribulation or suffering, okay? The Greek there is flipsis. It's the idea of tribulation. It's the, it's the idea of trial and testing and suffering, okay? And he's, what is that? Well, they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. Can you see that taking place in a world like ours? More and more. Amen. More and more. More and more. Right? It ain't getting any easier, is it? It's kind of interesting, this new breed of atheists that we see running around in the world. And the vehement, vehement, even violent attitude they have toward Christians. I mean, you bring up the scripture and this hair on the back of their neck goes like that. How many of you have encountered an atheist like that? <laughs> I certainly have. Uh, <clears throat> but Jesus goes on, he says, at that time, at what time? At the time that, you're, that uh, you're handed over to tribulation and you're hated by all nations and persecuted on account of my name. At that time, okay, when that, when that hatred reads a, reaches a boiling point, when that persecution is taking place and they're killing you, killing who? You, Christians. When that's happening, he says, listen, at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. Okay? Many will fall away. Fall away from what? Fall away from the truth. Right? And betray, deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Does that sound like our world today? Let me tell you, more and more. Lovers of self. Law lawlessness is increasing more and more, isn't it? Yeah, you're pointing out 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul says in the end times, man, it's going to be bad. It's going to be treacherous. It's going to be deceitfully wicked, right? When, G uh, when uh, Paul describes, I read to you this morning, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12, Right, He de describes the coming of the lawless one in accord with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles and lying signs and wonders that deceive those who are perishing. Okay, It's going to be a time of great deception. Through what? Through signs and wonders and false Christs misleading people. It's going to be a time of great deception. Okay, This is what Jesus is describing. He's saying during that time... Um, they're going to kill you. You're going to be hated by all nations, and many are going to turn away, fall away from the faith, and deliver up one another, and hate one another. Tell me what happens when you have to take a mark on your right hand or on your forehead in order just to buy or sell. And you're unwilling to do that. Or in the same context of Revelation 13, the scripture says that, that the false prophet is going to set up an image of the beast and cause all who do not worship the beast to be killed. Tell me what's going to happen when you don't worship the beast. You understand? They're going to hand you over to tribulation. And they're going to kill you. Okay? And as Jesus says in another place, I think it's Matthew 10, he says, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. 
Don't think for one minute that it's not wise to flee persecution. It is. <laughs> okay? Uh, but he goes on. <clears throat> I go on in page 87. It is at this time that the gospel testimony to the nations will reach its highest level in all of the church age. This is what Jesus says, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Okay? So Jesus just gave us in verses 5 through 14 a chronology of how things are going to unfold. Okay? Now, hear me out. Verses 15 through 28, he's describing what it's going to be like in the period between verses 9 through 14. Okay? That may be real complicated for you to work out in your brain. You might want to just take my word for it and go back and think about it. But here's what I'm saying. In verses 15 through 28, Jesus is describing what it looks like during the period from verses 9 through 14. That is, during the severe uh, tribulation, persecution, falling away, and apostasy. Okay, And when that gospel witness is going out into all the world, when that stuff is happening, this is what Jesus says about that. He says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. I need to stop and tell you that this is what made the preterist angry one day. <laughs> when I was talking about Matthew 24 and not talking about the fact that there are certain events in Matthew 24 that we just read that had a partial fulfillment back in 70 AD. How many of you are aware of that? A pretty good portion of you, okay? Some of these things are did happen in the uh, time when uh, uh, Titus the Roman destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. Not only that, that's a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 1, right? He said, uh, see this grand building? They're looking at the temple from the Mount of Olives. You know, that the famous picture where you're looking over there, you can see the dome of the rock, that, that uh, Muslim shrine that's sitting on the Temple Mount, the famous picture of Jerusalem. That's a picture from the Mount of Olives, and you're looking on to the Temple Mount. Okay, well, in, in Jesus' day, at the time of his disciples, that's where Herod's temple sat. And, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. This is why we call it the Olivet Discourse, because this is where Jesus is giving all this information. They're looking over there, and, and they're commenting on the buildings, how grand they are. And Jesus says, you know what? <clears throat> There's going to come a day when not one stone will be left on another. They'll all be thrown down. And uh, so he, when, when they asked the question in verse 3, look at it. Look what he says. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What things? The things he just referred to. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. So as Jesus is unfolding the Olivet Discourse, hear me out. This is very important. As he's unfolding the Olivet Discourse, 
There is a dual fulfillment in prophecy that Jesus is speaking about. It's one of those things that I told you. It's called a conflation. It's where there's a prophetic pronouncement that encompasses events that happen in more than one point in history. Are you with me? And so what Jesus is doing is, first he's describing when these things will be. What things? The temple being torn down and all of those things. But then he goes on far beyond that. Why? Because he talks about the coming of the Antichrist and the abomination of desolation. He talks about the final apostasy in the church and the great falling away that takes place and the gospel witness going out to all the world. And then he talks about the great tribulation period. He says of of that time, uh, that time uh, has never been a time on the earth like that or ever shall be. Question, did that happen in 70 A.D.? Of course not, right? Uh, furthermore, he goes on to talk about the fact that at that time, there's going to be false Christs that are doing great signs and wonders in order to deceive even the elect if it's possible. It's great deception of false signs and wonders. This is uh, characterizes the ministry of the Antichrist. That's what our text in Second Thessalonians says, okay? But then Jesus describes in verses 29 through 31 the second coming. Okay, now how many of you know Jesus hasn't come back yet? (laughs) How come? Because we haven't seen the personal, bodily, visible return of the Lord Jesus, which is in view in Matthew 24, 29 through 31. Are you with me? So you have to understand this Olivet Discourse, this unfolding of this chronology, includes not only some of the things that happened up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, but... Furthermore, all the way up until the second coming of Christ. So you can, if you will, you can read this passage in two ways. One way is you can learn many of the things that Jesus was talking about were going to happen when the temple was destroyed. But you see in his same discourse, this going way beyond those, that mini apocalypse, right? To the great apocalypse. To the time when Christ is going to come back again and the whole world is going to be deceived by, by the Antichrist. And there's going to be a time of great tribulation on the face of the whole world. Right? And that Jesus Christ is going to come, and when he comes, every eye will see him coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And all the nations of the earth will mourn. Amen? Amen. Now, did that happen in 70 AD? No, it didn't. Okay, so are you with me? There's a conflation here. Does everybody understand that? Okay, I had to qualify this passage by telling you that. Okay? So, Jesus is going through his chronology. He tells us that um, in, in uh, verses 5 through 14 that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, but the end is not yet. Then they will hand you over to tribulation and persecute you and kill you, and, and you will be hated by all nations on account of me. And at that time, many will fall away and deliver up one another and hate and betray one another. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, right? (laughs) But then he says, it's at that time that the gospel will be preached as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. Then in verses 15 through 28, he's describing what that period looks like. That this abomination of desolation is going to take place spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Okay, now that immediately brings us into the context of of Daniel, the prophet. And what does Daniel say about this? A ton. Okay, a ton. We're not going to get there this week, but we'll get there real soon. Because when we try to understand who this Antichrist is, we have to understand the things that Daniel said. Because he says some very important and key things about who this man is. But nevertheless, Jesus is saying that that abomination of desolation is going to take place. And when it does, there will be a great tribulation on the face of the earth like had never happened before. Okay? Now, I want you to understand something. That tribulation that happens is the things that happen because of the Antichrist. It is the things that he is doing. He is the son of destruction. Do you know what that means? (laughs) That means destruction characterizes his being and who he is and his work. Okay, and when you read Revelation 13, you see what that destruction is. He goes out and deceives all the nations of the world into worshiping him. 
Paul says he sets himself up in the temple of God and declares himself to be God and exalts himself above every so-called God. Daniel says the same thing about him, identically. Paul is quoting Daniel about the Antichrist when he says that. Not only that, he opens his mouth to speak and blaspheme God and the name of God and those who dwell in heaven. Okay, this guy has a mouth. This is what Daniel says about him, that he was... Uh, that he has a mouth to speak blasphemies. And Revelation 13 says he was given a mouth to speak blasphemies. Okay? And so this is the thing that characterizes him, his boastful mouth. When he is revealed, let me tell you, he comes out and he says, man, I'm the deal. He's telling everybody in the whole world. And you know what the Bible says? Everybody in the whole world will worship the beast and they will look at the beast and wonder and say, who can make war with a beast? Okay, so much so, so deluding and powerfully deceptive is his influence that he will set up a religious and an economic system in the world by which all the people in the world will worship the image of him that is set up by the false prophet or be killed. That's what the Bible says. And that if you don't take his mark on your forehead or your right hand, you cannot buy, sell, or trade. That's the economic part of what he does. Now, I want to tell you, that's an evil dude. And when he comes out and he shows his true colors, when you read in Daniel what it says he does, it says in chapter 8 that he causes astounding devastation and succeeds at whatever he does. And let me tell you, deceiving the whole world into worshiping an idol who is representing a man, okay, leads the whole world into hell. And that, family, is destruction. Are you with me? And that's exactly what this guy does. How does he do it? God simply lets man over to his own lusts. Right? And this restrainer that Paul talks about that's holding all of that back right now is going to be removed. And you know what? God is saying to man, okay, you want to worship idols? I'm going to remove my restraint. Worship idols you shall do. And they, this Antichrist will deceive the whole world into uh, uh, worshiping him. And the Bible says that whoever takes the mark of the beast, Revelation 14, will be tormented in the sight of the holy angels forever and every world without end. That the penalty for taking the mark of the beast in the Bible is clearly spelled out that uh, that, that destiny of that person is hell. Okay? And so um, Jesus is, when Jesus says the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that includes everything I just explained to you. Okay? Which is made vividly clear in Revelation 13. And we'll be looking at that in the weeks to come when we talk more about the Antichrist. But back to the chronology of Matthew 24. Okay? So Jesus is describing those things. He says when that abomination of desolation happens, there's going to be a great tribulation. And my point was, that tribulation is what the Antichrist does. That isn't what God does. Let me tell you, what God does is, what Antichrist does pales in comparison to what God does. When the Lord Jesus comes, man, let me tell you, heads are going to roll. This is not going to be a pretty picture, okay? And when he comes, he is going to put to flight all evil on the face of the whole earth, okay? He's going to destroy the kings of the earth, and, and he is going to destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet, and he's going to bind Satan in the pit, okay? But my point is, is that the tribulation is the events that take place at the rise of Antichrist to power and the things that he does. That is not the wrath of God. Antichrist can deceive people, but he can't throw 100-pound hailstones down from heaven on men's heads. Are you with me? Nor can he create the furnace of hell, which burns forever and ever which was created for the devil and his angels. That's God's kind of power. And God warns that we better hear him and believe his gospel, right? Or he's going to throw us in hell. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't fear man. 
Don't fear this man of lawlessness. Right? But God, he ought to be your dread. Because after destroying the body, he can also destroy the soul in hell. Fear God, Jesus says, not man. Are you with me? Okay, so Jesus is going through this chronology. He says that uh, there's going to be this falling away, this apostasy. Look here, family. Have you seen this? Look at this again. It's also on page 88. Jesus is going through and he's telling, he's giving us this chronology. He says there'll be the beginning of birth pains, verses 4 through 8. Then there'll be persecution and martyrdom, verse 9. Then there'll be a falling away and apostasy, verse 10 through 14. Then there'll be a great tribulation when the Antichrist is revealed. And of course, during that time, there's going to be false prophets and signs and wonders deceiving everyone. Okay? And then, look, that brings us to verse 29. So when that Antichrist is doing his thing and all that tribulation is going on, okay, Jesus says that's going to be cut short. That's going to be cut short for what? (coughs) For the sake of the elect. Here's how I read that. The saints are going to be delivered by Christ out of that great day of suffering and persecution. That's why I think more saints are going to live through that than saints that die as a result of the persecution. Because that is seen also in Thessalonians as the day of our deliverance. When Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution on those. Right? Are you with me? That's our day of deliverance. But here's what he says then about verses uh, uh, 29 through 31. He then describes this cutting short of the great tribulation by the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him. So Jesus has been describing this chronology of all these things that's going to happen, and then this is what he says. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days. Are you with me? Here, let me read it to you right out of the Bible. Here's what it says. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, so here is the chronology that Jesus is giving. And he says, after the tribulations, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to appear in the sky. All the nations of the earth are going to mourn. He's going to show up with all of his angels and gather his elect. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, what more clearer revelation do you need? You understand? Do you understand how I read Matthew 24? Which, by the way, you know, some will argue that, well, Matthew is a book written to the Jews. And Jesus is talking to the Jews here. Well, you can read it in Mark, which isn't written to the Jews. And it says exactly the same thing. As a matter of fact, Mark is even clearer that in Mark 13, 27, when he talks about the rapture, he says it's from one end of the earth to the other end of heaven. Which kind of infers that Jesus is gathering people on the earth and people who are already in heaven. Who are they? The dead in Christ. Right? So, but my point is simply that Jesus lays out the chronology crystal clear. He tells us when the rapture is. When is it? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Okay? I would like to ask you this. If you don't believe that's true, then you need to have a clear answer in your mind for what is happening in verse 31. What is that? If that's not the rapture, if that's not the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, what is that? Where can you see that event at some other place in Scripture? Where where I'm saying it's listed in 10 other places in Scripture and it's all talking about the same thing, which is what? The first resurrection, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. 
which appears in seven different places in First and Second Thessalonians. It's also spoken of in Daniel 12. It's also spoken of in, in uh, uh, Revelation chapter 14. Right? It's also spoken of in Luke 17 when Jesus is talking about uh, uh, how on the very day that Lot left Sodom, that fire and sulfur rained down and destroyed those who were left. And Jesus goes on to say, uh, there's coming a day when two men will be in the field. And one will be taken and the other will be left. Right? I mean, this, this, this event is in Scripture all over the place. It's in John when he says, when we, uh, we shall be like him when we see him as he is. Right? Or Paul says that he's going to transform the body of uh, 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 our, uh, this fallen body into conformity with the body of his glory. Philippians 3. Right? This, this event is all through the scripture. So the purpose then of the rapture is so that, um, you know, why we are actually raptured off the earth is so that then the wrath of God can be finished. You got it. Which is what this chart portrays. That's why I'm a post-tripper, but I don't believe that the church is going to be involved in the wrath of God. Because the wrath of God is not the tribulation. Okay, where in the Bible does the Bible talk about the tribulation being the wrath of God? Right. If you think that, I think you need to have a good text that explains that, or many texts that explain that. What I'm saying is, the church is delivered from this earth, and it's at that time that all the nations of the earth are mourning before Christ. And guess what they see? They see the church being delivered. That's the day you put your foot on the necks of all your enemies. Okay, And it's also the day that Christ destroys those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And he arrests every evil power on the face of the earth. And he brings his powerful throne to reign on the earth in Jerusalem. And it's at that self-same time that he saves the nation of Israel. Okay? Notice how consistent Jesus' sequence is with Paul's sequence in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. Paul says that the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him won't happen until, number one, the apostasy comes first, and number two, the Antichrist is revealed. This is clear when he says that it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, and that is exact sequence Jesus describes above. The below chart depicts the sequence of events in the Olivet Discourse. Okay, so what I'm saying is, Paul's sequence and timeline is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 24 or Mark 13. Now, concerning the timing of the rapture and the second coming, Paul is very concerned that the Thessalonians not be deceived. This is his point of his text, to correct them on their understanding of this timing. That is the whole point of 2 Thessalonians 1, Ver, uh, 2 verses 1 through 3. What, what's the point? The point is that the rapture and the second coming are post-tribulational events. That's Paul's point in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 3. And he's writing that so that they won't be deceived about what they think about it. Okay? He says, let no one in any way deceive you. Sound like Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 4? About this important fact, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. What won't come? Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. Back in verse 1. That won't come. Until what? Until the apostasy and the man of lawlessness be revealed. This was also a great concern to Jesus when he was asked by his disciples about what would be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age. He replied, see to it that no one misleads you. About what? About when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Okay? Okay, so. I think I better end there. I got time for a couple questions. Anybody? Joe? Do I think he'll use a what? Teleprompter. Teleprompter. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm sorry, I didn't get it. Somebody else? Uh, can you clarify uh, Matthew 24, 24, verse 14? Is Jesus saying that the proclamation of the gospel will end at the beginning of the tribulation or proceed through the tribulation to the rapture and the second coming? He is clearly saying that when the time of tribulation, persecution, hatred of all nations on account of my name, people falling away and delivering up and hating one another, and lawlessness being increased so that most people's love will grow cold, he, he is saying that at that time, because he uses the, the, the English word here is and, and the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. So uh, the point is, is that while all of this tribulation and persecution and falling away is taking place, also the gospel is going forth like never before. That's how I read that. And, and I do believe that that's happening all the way through until the end. As long as there are saints on the earth, the gospel's being preached. Okay, especially in these great, drastic, terrible days that are coming upon the world. Because what a witness. Yeah, well, and you know what happens when you persecute Christians, right? Yeah, the church grows like crazy, right? The, the, the old term is what? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Right? You know what that means, right? You step on those Christians' toes too hard and they squawk. <laughs> right? Okay, yeah. There's been a number of times in histories where there were types of Antichrist that were seen to part of these events, like mm -hmm. Nero. Yes. Uh, the Maccabees. Nero? Oh, yeah, okay, let's go back. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Right. And um, Nero. Hitler to some Nero, Caligula. Caligula, this guy, Caligula, he tried to set up his own image in the temple of God in Jerusalem before it was destroyed. And he got, uh, let's just say that divine providence didn't work out too well for him. <laughs> but uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, Nero, Caligula, uh, even Titus, um, even Titus, and uh, but, but then on beyond that, We've Hitler. got, uh, uh, okay, Hitler. That. She's, she's talking about all these men being men who are characterized as types of the Antichrist. In other words, they seem to be strangely infected by who they are and what they do by the spirit of Antichrist. Okay, so like this guy here, this guy here sacrifices a pig on the altar in the temple. This happened before the time of Jesus. Sorry, go ahead. But not all of the events were fulfilled. There was always some element, like the one guy set himself mm -hmm. up in the temple. Yeah. And yeah. And so the Antichrist, all of these, the economic, the being in the temple, it will all be at the same time. Right, amen. That's the difference. Yeah, she's saying that even though these men prefigured Antichrist, and you can look at them, and, and the more you know about this, the more what she's saying is so vividly clear. Um, but that every one of them leaves something yet to be fulfilled. They don't actually fully fulfill who he is, okay? And let me give you an example. We could read the book of Daniel, and we could read the events that happened in chapter 11 and 12, and it would be clearly describing Antiochus Epiphanes, because the whole war between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, what are they called? Ptolemies? Somebody? Ptolemies, I'm sorry. Ptolemies and the Seleucids, that whole war and everything is described in Daniel 11, hundreds of years before it even happens. Okay? But when it happens, just like Daniel said it was going to happen, that's how it happens. Well, the, the figure of, uh, I think he's a Seleucid, actually, I, I'm, I forget that, but Antiochus Epiphanes is the one who actually comes in, conquers the Jews, and he's the one that sacrifices a pig on the altar, okay? Of course, that whole supernatural thing that goes on there with uh, the Festival of Lights and all that, I, don't, I can't describe all that to you now. I'm out of time, but... Um, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, looks like the fulfillment of the Antichrist in history. How do we know that it is not him? The answer being 
that when Jesus, that happens in 175 B.C. This Antiochus Epiphanes happened in 175 B.C. When Jesus shows up and he's telling his disciples, these things are yet future. Yeah. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, he's saying right there, Jesus is saying, that means that when Antiochus sacrificed a pig on the altar, that was not the abomination of desolation. You understand? Which is what Mary Beth's point is, is that there are these types of the Antichrist throughout history who seem to very closely look like him, but nobody uh, quite fits the whole bill. One other thing is all these guys are localized to a certain place, okay? Antichrist is a scope of the whole world. Okay, that's what it says in Revelation 13, that the whole world will worship and follow the beast. Okay? All right, let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we read these very, very profound things in Scripture. And we, some of us have a tendency to have the daylights scared out of us. And Lord, others of us uh, look with fear and trembling. Others of us look with great anticipation of your soon coming. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen and encourage all your people to read and hear and understand these things and to apply them to our daily life. Lord, as we see all of this happening, may we be never so serious about our faith as we are today, having learned and known and seen these things and know what's coming upon the world. God, help us to be gospel-preaching machines. Help us to be snatching people from the fire by telling them how they can be saved. And Father, we just uh, pray that you'd give us boldness and strength as the days wear on, as lawlessness increases, is that our love will not grow cold. Father, help us, strengthen us in these days, we pray. Because of Jesus' holy cross, amen. amen.